Hello and welcome to another episode of Future Insight. I am Dean Cantu, the host, and uh, I am pleased to introduce to you uh, today's guest, Dr. John Warner. He is the President and Chief Technology Officer for the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry. So welcome, John. I appreciate you taking time out to be here with us. My pleasure to be here. Excellent. I've got, uh, before we get started here, if you could just give uh, our listeners a little bit of uh, a background uh, on, on, uh, on your career that, that uh, um, uh, helped you to get to the position that you hold today and, uh, and a little bit about that position uh, as well. Okay. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. It's hard for me to describe my path as kind of an accidental tourist of life. I uh, started life as a music major. My high school, I was a um, class musician, went to university as a music major and somehow turned into a chemist, uh, became a medicinal chemist at Princeton, was destined to be an academic um, professor in medicinal chemistry, and somehow turn that into um, heading exploratory research group at Polaroid, the photographic company, for about 10 years. While I was at Polaroid, I, um, me and I, my friend at the EPA came up with this concept called green chemistry and got very focused on that. And so next, found myself in academia as a full professor and chair of chemistry and a full professor of plastics engineering, director of biochemistry, and started the world's first PhD program in green chemistry. And after about 12 years of that, I left to start my own invention factory called the Warner Babcock Institute with a guy named Jim Babcock. And for the last 12, 13 years, have run a, a research facility um, inventing technologies, spinning out technologies as new companies or licensing them to various multinationals. So kind of a interesting path that if anyone were to ask me at any point in my life what I'd be doing in five years, I would have been wrong. <laughs> it did take sort of a meandering path. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, again, you mentioned green chemistry. Uh, <coughs> could you give our listeners a, a little bit of a, a working definition, if you will, sure. of, of what we mean by green chemistry? If you open up the newspaper, you turn on the radio, you look on the Internet, and you hear about this red dye that causes cancer or a plasticizer in a plastic product that causes birth defects or materials that are you know, having impact on the environment, either through global climate change or something like that. You sit back and you ask yourself, why would someone invent a material that has negative impacts of human health and the environment. It just, of course, no one would want to do that. And the epiphany that my friend and I had, Paul Anastas, who was working at the EPA at the time back in the early 90s, was the field of chemistry is absent of any training of what makes a molecule have negative impacts on human health and the environment. If you look at the curriculum of every university worldwide and see what coursework, what training a, a person must have to become a chemist, you will find that it's absent and that self-definitionally, chemists don't really look at understanding the potential negative impacts. And so that block of knowledge that gets added to the field of chemistry to anticipate these things. It's called green chemistry. Interesting. Interesting. And you talk about uh, the evolution, if you will, uh, of green chemistry, whether it's, it, it's, 
its presence in the curriculum or mm-hmm. or in uh, you know discussions in, in in higher ed or, or within the industry itself mm-hmm. or the profession. Uh, what have you seen if you sort of juxtaposed where you started with today in terms of the the footprint, if you will, of of green chemistry and that evolution that you speak of? I I'm thrilled to see how things have evolved now. The field of green chemistry has emerged and there are literally hundreds if not thousands of people worldwide now promoting the field of green chemistry. You know, there was a time when people would scratch their heads and still I'm sure today don't know, aren't familiar. But in the field of chemistry, um, now, the you know, so Paul Anassis and I, we wrote a book back in the 90s called Green Chemistry Theory and Practice. And there was a time when people didn't know what this was. Now I would argue every university worldwide that has a chemistry program has one or two faculty that just get it and have embraced this into their discipline. There's a lot of K-12 education curriculum. Because at the end of the day, green chemistry isn't analyzing, measuring, and characterizing materials for their harm. It's using that knowledge to empower individuals to invent new technologies. Because at the end of the day, the way I look at it is... Getting to a sustainable, safe future is a crisis of innovation. We need new eyes, new ideas, what it means to be a chemist to invent the next generation of materials. We need the next generation of people to roll up their sleeves, not only learn how to invent these products that society's become dependent on, but invent it in a way that has limited impact on human health and the environment. And right now, I would argue well over 65, 70% of the technologies out there need, we desperately need improvement. What we need is inventors and innovators to do that, not just the chemists, but the entire um, cycle from uh, marketing and sales to uh, the, the chemists, the engineers, the biologists. It's just the society as a whole needs to reevaluate our relationship with materials. Absolutely, and you can see that in, in your writing as well. I, I, I can see that come through. You one of the one of the phrases you use. You say there's there's a uh, that I like, and you're talking about this next generation of students, mm-hmm. and, and, and you, you you talk about the the optimistic promise uh, of green chemistry. What, mm-hmm. what is it, particularly for the next generation? What is that optimistic optimistic promise for them? So, if if you imagine some student, uh, middle school student, high school student, who's wondering what they want to do for the rest of their life, and they have this dream of having positive impact, doing something to save the world, what that means to these individuals. You know, when you, th- when you think of the, the unmet needs that society faces, inventing those new technologies is quite an opportunity. Can you imagine a 17-year-old, 18-year-old person working in a lab, pouring beakers and flasks, inventing some technology that if they get it right, hundreds of thousands of people they will never meet might not get exposed to, to potential carcinogens or endocrine disruptors or mitigate global climate change or something like that. What could be more empowering to 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 use one's ingenuity and, and innovative skills that I believe every human is inherently born with to take that capacity and, and solve really important problems for the world and have a good time while you're doing it? Not a bad job. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh, I know in one of your writings you quote Einstein, uh, 
there's a quote there about no problem can be solved at the same level of awareness that created it. Yeah. And, and, and you talk about that need, as we're discussing here, for a diversity of students that have new, those new perspectives you talk about, those new ideas to help you know, chart the path for the future. Um, how do we nurture those those skills and maybe nurture isn't the right word, but how do would you know particularly in K twelve schools mm-hmm. you know for those students to encourage them you know uh, not only to consider you know STEM fields at, mm-hmm. you know at the post secondary level but but also uh, uh, you know within the looking at it through the prism of green chemistry yeah. as well. well I, it's, it's interesting. I you know I'm a, a first generation college student from a very large Sicilian German family. Um, as I as I mentioned. Uh, class musician, if I go to a high school reunion, you know, people don't believe me when I say I'm a chemist. It's just not something that was... And, and I feel that, in, in, in my opinion, when we look at this concept of nurturing, I think the first step we have to do is actually identify what we're doing to inhibit this. And rather than create structures to nurture, we need to identify what we're doing to create these barriers. You know, and I think what happens is we overcompartmentalize, you know, people's anticipation of what futures are. And so people at, at 16, 15, 17 years old, they're not ready to make a lifelong commitment to what it is that they're going to do. And I think the most important message is to, is really, you know, chill. The decisions that you make today do not define you for the rest of your life you you can be and and the people who when they're young there there were some brilliant amazing people who were destined to become chemists they were born with test tubes in their diapers or whatever they they just they they, they, they and i feel the world is going to take care of them and they're going to go and they're going to do what chemists do. But what we really need is the people that don't see themselves as chemists because they will, as Einstein's quote, no problem can be solved at the same level one as the created. We need the people that don't think the way the traditional chemist does, that looks at this problem from an entirely different viewpoint. And so this is a passionate call, not to the traditional chemist, but to the athletes, to the musicians, to the artists, to the people that don't see themselves as part of this, and to say, why not? Right. You know, because everyone has an inherent ability to ask a question of, you know, how can I change the world in a better place? And it's not about the books that you read and the textbooks that you take and the classes that you take. There is an inherent ability in all humans to be creative and imaginative and in the same way in writing, in painting, also in anticipating new forms of matter and technologies. I think we need to be more open-minded at how this is a universal thing and we need this diversity. I would argue if the chemical enterprises 50 years ago were inclusive and accepting of diversity, we would have no sustainability issues today because people would have said, wait a minute, you're doing what? But because we've constructed this isolation of what chemists do, we're in this problem. We need to be inviting to everyone, not only inviting, but pleading and desperately asking people to come in and help us do what we need to do. Right. Absolutely. It reminds me, there was a, a film I watched one time, it's called Searching for Bobby Fischer. And it's mm-hmm. about a, a chess master who's, who reluctantly takes on a, a, you know, seemingly is a child prodigy. Of, and, and, and he's trying to teach him, uh, diff, you know, different strategies to employ it. Mm-hmm. And, and you talk about these impediments, these hurdles. 
and the chess pieces themselves have become such a hurdle, and the student can't see the move that the you know the chess master wipes the you know the board clean of all chess pieces, and then the student concentrates on a blank board, and then and only then mm-hmm. can he see the move. Yep. And and that's sort of what we were talking about yeah. there. We there yeah. there are a lot of those things that that we have. It's not so much nurturing solely, but it's it's looking at what are those other hurdles? What are those things? you know, that are in the way uh, yeah. that maybe we're not even aware uh, become those impediments or those hurdles yeah. for students. Yeah, it, it's interesting that the, the, the structures that we have in our, our institutions have become so convoluted and intertwined. So, you know, some, sometimes the only way to deal with is to tip the board over and put the pieces back on. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. I, I, I find it, uh, you have, a, you have a, uh, an interesting, uh, uh, you know, uh, heuristic uh, on your, uh, on your, on your website. Um, and, and it sort of traces your, your, uh, your career. And you talk about when you were at Polaroid, you talked about doing chemistry. And then when you're at UMass, uh, you talked about learning chemistry was a focus. And then uh, at the Institute, the, the Warner Babcock Institute, you, you, you're now involved in inventing chemistry. And then you also talk about your work with, you know, uh, I guess, governmental or maybe some NGOs mm-hmm. uh, in terms of policy initiatives, and that's managing chemistry. But I, li- I like looking at it that way. Could you kind of talk a little bit more about the relationship among those, those different entities of doing, inventing, managing, and learning uh, chemistry? Yeah. Well, I think it comes back to, again, our, our unfortunate approach to compartmentalize people and an educator is an educator, an inventor is an inventor, uh, someone in government policies and government policy and we create this, this structure where we, where we know that changes have to happen in our world. But the point is, is that the, the changes have to happen in all four aspects of the chemical enterprises, how we teach and learn, how we invent, how we do, and how we manage. And all these things have to happen simultaneously. And, and again, and people have to get, in, get engaged and involved in the different various aspects. You know, there's, in, in July, there was, um, it, it was interesting, the, in the United States, every, all eyes were focused on the day that Bob Mueller testified to Congress. Congress on some Wednesday. Well, interesting, the next day on Thursday, I was in the same chair, you know, testifying to the Sustainable and Green Chemistry Research and Development Act. And that thing passed the House, both the Republicans and the Democrats, because whether you're an environmentalist or looking at economic development and competitiveness, green chemistry is something that has a little bit of everything. But we need to invent the way to do it and learn how to do things in a different way. So it's all the aspects of the, really, the structures in, in society that need to be you know, changed a little bit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I know that you, you have, you've articulated what you call the 12 principles of green chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of tracing the genesis of that and then mm-hmm. how that serves, I guess, both perhaps to define Mm-hmm. Green chemistry, as well as a guide uh, mm-hmm. the work of, of green chemists. Yeah. So, so the way I like to, to, to talk about this is, I have a seven-year-old daughter, Natalie, and I'm sure every father thinks this way of their child that she's just amazingly articulate. She can sit here and she can have a conversation with you. She can read. She can write. She speaks beautifully, and yet she has no idea what a noun is. 
She has no idea what a verb is. In a few years, she'll start taking classes, learning parts of speech and sentence structure. And one could say, well, why bother? She's reading, she's writing, why go through this? And I would argue that right now she's kind of mimicking her environment, heaven forbid for her, her father and you know, her mother, and she's, she's <laughs> getting by doing this. But when she learns the parts of speech, when she learns sentence structure, not only is this a tool to how she communicates externally, but it creates structure internally and in that the way that she thinks just elevates to a much higher level. I would argue that the field of chemistry is like my seven-year-old daughter. Chemists wake up in the morning and say, I prefer not to die today. And they go in the lab and they try to make decisions to not hurt themselves. So the companies have figured out if they kill their customer, that's very bad for sales. So they try not to do that. But there is no sentence structure. There is no part of their education that brings them to this, this, this structural way of approaching it. We just get by. And so the 12 principles of green chemistry are like the, 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 the sentence syntax of how do you do things that are safe and don't hurt the environment. So it isn't trying to inspire people to want to do safe things. I would argue they already do. They just don't have the ability to do it at a level that we need them to do. And that's the mistake, is to assume that this is, this is, this is a demand problem. It's not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, this next question you 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 probably uh, don't anticipate, uh, but it has to do with having. Uh, I don't, it wouldn't necessarily be one of your publications appear, but but a uh, a blurb about you appear adjacent to a a piece uh, that had a, a graphic of a cat pushing a, a shopping cart. And ironically, throughout your entire career, you're a prolific author, scholar, researcher. Uh, the BPA in receipts story seems to be your 15 minutes of fame. Could you talk uh, a little bit about that? Well, that, it, was, it, was, it was interesting that um, what happened <coughs> was when Canada banned Nalgene plastic bottles because of bisphenol A. This journal magazine um, called Science News called to ask me my opinion. You know, being the guy from green chemistry, what do I think of bisphenol A and plastic bottles? And it was interesting. I'm driving in my car and being a dutiful citizen, I pull over to the side of the road to speak on my phone and I pulled into the parking lot of a, um, a grocery store. And while I'm talking on the phone, um, a pregnant woman comes out of the grocery store and she's fumbling with her packages, fumbling with her keys, and she takes her cash register receipt and she puts it in her mouth and opens the car door and a neuron just pops in my head and I say, you know what drives me crazy? What drives me crazy is while I acknowledge that bisphenol and plastics is an important issue, what we're not paying attention to is thermal cash register receipts have milligram quantities of bisphenol A freely on it, and that the exposure to humans of that is really, really important. We got it, and the guy goes, "Calm down, calm down. I'm doing something about plastics." And but in the article. They mentioned John Warner reveals bisphenol A and cash registers. They didn't reveal anything. They were there. You could do it. But for whatever reason, that caught people's attention. Oh, my God. The next week, um, there are hundreds of websites. John Warner reveals bisphenol and cash registers. 
countries are calling me up wanting to know what is this about cash register receipts. I was on Tom Ashbrook's On Point talking about this. <laughs> so here I've spent my whole life inventing technologies that don't hurt humans in the environment or at least mitigate that. Hundreds of patents, products, I'm like, nobody cares. The one time by accident I mention a mechanism of harm, everyone takes notice. And so I, ironically, in Woman's Day, a Woman's World magazine, <laughs> on the same page as a cat pushing a shopping carriage, there is a little blurb about John Wanna reveals bisphenol A in cash register receipts. <laughs> and I, I saw that as poignant because we're in a society that rewards people who identify problems, mm-hmm. but aren't really there anymore when the people are there to solve the problems. And we really need to be introspective and think a little bit about that. And that, that really got me thinking about what I should be spending my time on. And I said, I'm not looking for fame. I'm not looking for the spotlight. I'm perfectly happy being behind the scenes, actually solving the problems. Right, absolutely. You bring up a couple of, of, of interesting points. You're right. Your, your epitaph somewhere will have that you're the muckraking journalist. John <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not the moniker that's the one that's bestowed yeah. upon you. Uh, but you're right, though. So often the individuals are, really are sort of voyeurs sitting yeah. on the sidelines, like you said, and it's much easier to, to identify those things and to come up with some sort of resolution or some solution uh, yeah. uh, to address those. Um, absolutely. The uh, again, future insight. You, you know, our listeners are, are K twelve higher education mm-hmm. teachers, faculty, counselors, administrators. Um, how can we bring? You, you say that there's starting to become a, a footprint, if you will, a curricular footprint mm-hmm. for green chemistry in the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, what can K twelve educators do to make that more pronounced? Okay. Or what are some Resources that they mm-hmm. might, uh, you know, uh, access, yeah. uh, John, to uh, to uh, to integrate that into their uh, curricula. Okay. So, um, when I was a professor at UMass, I had a very large research group. I had 30, 40 people doing research, um, visiting professors, postdocs, graduate students, and I had an inviolable rule: anyone doing research with me had to several times month, go visit K-12 schools and talk about their research. Now, the K-12 students benefited by seeing people not too much older than them, talking and being excited about the sciences. But I also would argue that the, the, the scientists were good benefit because it's easy in science to get tied up in jargon, and you can jargon yourself away and not know a whole lot. But when you talk to a third grade class about something, you really kind of got to understand it. When I left in 2007, to start the Lana Babcock Institute. I didn't have funding for this. I was worried no one was going to pick this up. I had hundreds of school systems that were dependent on these things going on. And so my wife, Amy Cannon, who's also a professor at UMass, left the same day. And while I started the Lana Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry, she started the nonprofit Beyond Benign. And beyondbenign.org has hundreds of lesson plans that are free to download to bring into the curriculum. They're not even in PDF. They're in Word format. So people are encouraged to to use this, you know, and, and no resources or anything like that. And the idea here is not to preach 
sustainability, not to preach innovation, but when the, the, the classroom instructor has to teach something because of the estate frameworks or whatever. What we do is somewhat subversively use invention and sustainability as the illustrative examples to teach those lesson plans. And what we have found is when the student has the context of sustainability or, or invention or innovation, their attention is much more deeper, their, their, their success is better, and so at the end of the day, they, they, the, the, the instructor connects better with the students. The students are more engaged. They bring that home and talk to their parents about it, so the entire thing ends, so that we achieve the goals of improving STEM education. And at the same time, we get them inspired about sustainability. And so that is a, a, a very good resource. There are you know, videos that can be played in the classroom at all different levels and a lot of other tools. And they have a, a, a large out Work, outreach network where there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands at last count, of K-12 teacher student ambassador teams that are organized from beyond benign to do this. And so there are many other organizations, but that's the one that, that I'm connected to that I'm most proud of is beyondbenign.org. Outstanding. Yeah. Outstanding. Mm -hmm. it, we're getting to the end here of the podcast, John. Is there anything else, uh, you know, that you uh, that we haven't discussed that you mm -hmm. think would be relevant to, uh, to our listeners, uh, given again their their respective positions in in K twelve in higher education? Yeah, so, so I, I feel it's it's interesting. One, you know, some time ago I was cleaning my house and I came across an old roll of thirty five millimeter film, and it was used. It was it was. But we, we never developed it. My first thing was, how does one develop a roll of 35 millimeter film? But the other was the excitement. What's on that? When did I take it? What possibly is on it? And it's, it's interesting being, having worked at Polaroid, the concept that there's a latent image in that film. And when I bring it to be processed, it'll be developed. I feel K through 12 education and educators are essentially there's this amazing role that we play in creating that latent image on our students and we may never see that film developed it could be five years ten years twenty years later these students that latent image that we 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 we, we give them as a gift could have such a huge impact on their future and their life and the people around them. And so I think, first of all, thanking this community for the incredibly important job that they, they have for literally the future of the human race and to sometimes just step back introspectively and fully appreciate not only the responsibility, but the opportunity that we have and, and just how wonderful that is and how desperately needed that is today in 2020 and thank this community and just wow. Absolutely. I agree completely. Uh, again, uh, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank Dr. John Warner uh, for joining us here today on Future Insight. And, uh, and again, uh, we wish you all, all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you very much. My pleasure.